are listening to The Depression Session at 99.1 FM Downtown Radio. Each week, we'll have a new guest tell the story of their depression. I'm your host, Laura Milkins, and thank you for joining us on The Depression Session. Just a note for my listeners, I want to make sure you understand that this is a show about depression, and some of the content can be triggering, so please take care of yourself if something on the show brings up difficult feelings, and seek professional help if you need it. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Depression Session on Downtown Radio. Today we have with us Joanne Lutz. She's a psychotherapist and yoga trainer in trauma-sensitive yoga. We'll be right back with Joanne, but first I'd like to talk about sleep. Now I lay me down to sleep and pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. When I was little, I had this little book with a little girl on the front that was that poem page by page. And I wanted my mom to read it every night and get in bed and say, Mom, can we read the little book? And we'd read that story. As an adult, I've often thought, what a grim little story to read at night. What a strange little thing to have an obsession with as a kid. The idea that you'd lie down at night and hope that you wake up in the morning. This week, I have been going to bed and hoping not to wake up, not to die, but just to keep sleeping. The National Sleep Foundation says the relationship between sleep and depressive illness is complex. Depression may cause sleep problems, and sleep problems may cause or contribute to depressive orders. For some people, symptoms of depression occur before the onset of sleep problems and for others, sleep problems appear first. Sleep problems and depression may also share risk factors and biological features, and the two conditions may respond to some of the same treatment strategies. Sleep problems are also associated with more severe depressive illness. So depression and sleep seem to have a bull battle going. For most people, it's actually insomnia. Depression has this anxiety and depression can leave you up at night thinking instead of sleeping. For me, especially this week, I had a break and I had all these glamorous plans of all these wonderful things I was going to do, all the fun I was going to have. I was going to hang out with my mom, going to paint my mom's car. I was going to enjoy some friends, maybe do some projects, get caught up at work. And instead, I slept a lot, 10 hours, 12 hours, a nap in the middle of the day. There was one day last week where I got in bed at six at night and I slept until 1040, called all the people who'd called me (laughs) earlier and said, sorry, sorry, I missed your message. And then I went back to sleep and slept until nine the next day. It's just crazy. It's, It's such a weird way of existing for the past I don't know, I guess it's been the past three years. I actually wake up in the middle of the night, like two in the morning, three in the morning. Used to be I'd go to bed at 11 and I'd wake up at five. I'd get six hours of sleep for years and years and years. I'd get six hours of sleep, feel refreshed, wake up like, hello morning and go out and enjoy the day and maybe take a nap if I felt a little sleepy. These days I get in bed and sometimes I get in bed early, trying not to do that, but get in bed at like eight at night. And I'm, I just want to sleep. 
for me, depression isn't a sadness. It's a numbness. I feel numb. I don't even know what I feel sometimes. I'm just going about my day doing the tasks and obligations that the day involves. It's like I'm asleep when I'm awake, too, on some kind of autopilot. And I want the alarm to go off and get up of of my life. I want to go back to feeling wee and go do things and wake up in the morning and water my garden and feel cheerful. And I don't even want to water my garden. I don't even want to water my garden. It seems like some kind of great metaphor. So sleep is incredibly important for us little mammals. They did a study on rats, and if they don't get sleep, if they're prevented from sleeping, they die. For humans, there's some part of our brain that manages to get some sleep, even if we're being sleep-deprived. It's weird. They've done studies on that as well. And I know, apparently with meth addicts, they hallucinate not because of the drug, but because they don't sleep. Maybe that's our brain's way of coping. We find some way to hallucinate. For me, the excessive sleep doesn't feel healthy. So I looked up some sleep strategies that can help you get better sleep. It says to avoid napping during the day. It can disturb the normal pattern of sleep and wakefulness. Avoid stimulants such as caffeine, nicotine, and alcohol too close to bedtime. While alcohol is known to speed the onset of sleep, it actually disrupts your your sleep because in the second half, the body begins to metabolize the alcohol and that causes you arousal to wake again. Exercise can can promote good sleep. Vigorous exercise should be taken in the morning or late afternoon. And then relaxing exercise like yoga can be done before bedtime to help initiate a restful night's sleep. Food can be disruptive right before sleep, so stay away from large meals close to bedtime. Also, dietary changes can cause sleep problems. If someone's struggling with a sleep problem, it's not a good time to start experimenting with spicy dishes. Ensure adequate exposure to natural light. This is particularly important for older people who may not venture outside as frequently as children and adults. Light exposure helps maintain a healthy sleep-wake cycle. Establish a regular relaxing bedtime routine. Try to avoid emotionally upsetting conversations and activities before trying to go to sleep. And don't dwell on or bring your problems to bed. Associate your bed with sleep. It's not a good idea to use your bed to watch TV, listen to the radio, or read. And make sure that sleep environment is pleasant and relaxing. The bed should be comfortable. The room should be not too hot or cold or too bright. These seem like pretty obvious suggestions. You know, go to bed at a regular time, get up at a regular time, don't drink caffeine, don't drink alcohol, eat properly, exercise. It's like the, the, all the recommendations for a healthy routine in general, not just for sleep, just in general. And unfortunately, I'm following a lot of those, although I do like to read in bed. In fact, reading is a nice way for me to go to sleep. I'll, I'll read stupid books at night, just absolutely like romances or, I hate to admit that, or uh, kind of silly mysteries where it's a little obvious what's happening. It, it's not any, you know, you might not know who the killer is, but it's not anything too too exciting. And, and just enough to be entertained and usually a couple paragraphs and I'm asleep. Falling asleep has never been my problem. 
only a rare occasion have I felt insomnia and it is awful for anyone who out there who suffers from insomnia. I'm so sorry. Such an awful feeling to not be able to go to sleep when you need it. But for me, sleep's a haven. Bed is a haven. I've made it a very nice place to be and I don't want to get up. And even in my life, I don't want to do anything. I feel like I'm just walking through life doing the obligations I need to do. So to get some sort of healthy sleep strategy, I don't know. I don't know how to make my life something that I want to be in because there's nothing wrong with it. So I think maybe just making myself sleep less, you know, say, okay, you've had seven hours of sleep, get out of bed and try to find some sort of, I don't know, it's easy when I'm in school because I have to get out of bed anyway, but maybe find something to do in the morning that, that cheers me up. Well, coffee cheers me up, but <laughs> something other than coffee. <laughs> so I hope all of you get good sleep this week. And I'll just end with a quote. Sleep is the golden chain that binds health and our bodies together. Thomas Decker. May your golden chain be strong this week. Much love to everyone. Support for Downtown Radio is provided by La Cocina Restaurant and Cantina, located at Old Town Artisans. La Cocina features globally inspired alfresco dining and eclectic wine, local beer, and creative cocktails, with live music, as well as indoor and outdoor seating in a botanical courtyard. La Cocina is a venue for any occasion. Located at 201 West Court Ave, next to the Tucson Museum of Art. More information at lacocinatucson.com. The Screening Room is a proud sponsor of Downtown Radio. The Screening Room, which now serves beer and wine, this week features Brooklyn, the story of a love triangle centered around an Irish immigrant in the 1950s New York, and Carol, starring Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara. On Monday, March 21st, it's the Cabaret Variety Open Mic, featuring local talent. And on Thursday, March 24th, Kung Fu Nights presents Shogun Assassin. For more information, visit ScreeningRoomTucson.com. Find them on Facebook or call 882-0204. Today we have with us Joanne Lutz, who is a psychotherapist and yoga therapist from Western Massachusetts. Hello, Joanne. Welcome to the Depression Session. Hi. Nice to be here. Yeah. So can you just tell us a little bit about what's new with you, what you're up to with your business? Mm. Well, you'll hear in my story that uh, in 2005 or so, I learned that there was a movement in the psychotherapist profession to start to explore yoga as a healing modality for anxiety, depression, and PTSD. So uh, since then, I've been studying how to do that, and I have been giving workshops around the United States, to psych- mostly to psychotherapists, but also to yoga therapists and yoga teachers on trauma-sensitive yoga. On what, my own. what exactly is trauma-sensitive yoga? Yeah. Well, it's, it's looking at yoga through a different lens for the benefits for people who are, ha- who are very sensitive, who ha- have been traumatized and their nervous system hasn't recovered yet. So there's, you know, some of the work is, is subtle and some of it is just plain common sense. You know, like don't sneak up behind uh, someone who's, who's in the yoga pose, don't touch them. Mm. unless you have a special relationship and uh, you have their permission, you know, have, have 
the class be in a place where they can't be seen by passers-by, just general things like that. But I've been going much more into the uh, neuroscience of it and how yoga seems to amazingly have been designed with the human nervous system in mind, you know, to, to regulate it just the way it needs, needs to be regulated. And I think that's why so many people feel so good after a yoga class. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I've, I've been practicing yoga for a number of years. In fact, I used to practice as a little kid with Miss Lily on <laughs> PBS. Oh, <laughs> wow. And so I've kind of been doing yoga since I was a little kid because yeah. it it's always felt very good. Mm-hmm. But I never thought of it as something for trauma and that it would mm-hmm. be different for someone who had been traumatized, they would they would need to do it a little differently as an instructor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because my experience with classes, I had a really, really, really wonderful instructor when I was in college. I took two classes with her where everything was gentle. It was Hatha yoga. Mm-hmm. It was very, not quite spiritual, but very deep and sensitive and mm-hmm. nicely done. And since then, I've taken some other yoga classes that were very nice, but it was almost like sports yoga, mm, yeah. <laughs> where it was a little brighter lighting, a little less. They do all the same things you would do in any yoga class, but the feeling of it was a little different. It didn't feel so gentle and thoughtful mm-hmm. and was more about getting yourself in the pose. Yeah. Yeah, well, yoga is very adaptable, mm-hmm. actually. And it can, I mean, in my case, I'm a very introspective person, but I enjoy having a rigorous, physically oriented class too, because it helps me strengthen my muscles. Yeah. And, <laughs> and uh, keeps me healthy in that way. So, um, you know, I like a whole spectrum of different approaches to yoga for myself personally. Yeah. I've been enjoying the Tucson Yoga Center here Ooh, yeah. while I'm visiting. Yeah, and and I think for me, it's it's it has always been you. I almost feel like you float away at the end. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's okay. Uh, into a more subtle version of yourself. Huh? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I've been practicing it now for a little more than forty-five years, and wow. you'll you know, when you hear my story, you'll you'll hear how I got started, but. It's been a, been a wonderful thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, on that note, I'd just like to say, Joanne, tell us the story of your depression. Okay. Well, um, I grew up in a very sheltered environment, and then I went off to college from 1966 to 1970, which was the opposite of sheltered. Mm. There was a sexual revolution and the drug revolution and the war, and you know, everything was falling apart all around me, and I really wasn't that well prepared for it. So I was entering my senior year and not knowing what I was going to be doing and feeling kind of isolated. And I uh, reconnected with a guy who I had known a bit in high school. And actually, my aunt had fixed us up. He came from the same kind of family that I did. And everyone thought, oh, they'll get married. And he's good. he was good looking and he had a nice singing voice. So I really fell for him in my very sweet, naive way. You know, I had had a little bit of sexual experimentation, but not even that much. So I fell in love with him, and it was, you know, in my senior year, he acted strange. He would get a job for a few days, and then he would lose it. And he would, he, one time he brought me a gift and said, here's this, this, this album for you, I stole it for you. And I started to get uncomfortable, and I, he didn't have any money, so I started 
giving him food and blah, blah. So what I was doing really went against my upbringing and my own personal values. And at a certain point, I realized that it wasn't going to work. And he tried to rape me at that point, and I fought him off, and he left. And the next morning, I woke up, and I felt very strange. There were strange sensations going through my body, and I would fall asleep, like seemed like out of my control, and then I'd wake up, and it was very strange time, and I didn't know what was going on. I was very scared, and so, and I was angry too. Some kind of deep anger came out of me that I had never felt before, which I think was healthy, but what happened was that I, I threw every book I had, I flung it against the wall. It was a way of, I was expressing my anger. Boom, 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 and one of them opened up in front of me, and I looked at it. I had never read it. It was called Vedanta for the Western World, which was about yoga and the yoga philosophy. So I sat there and I started reading it. And I felt that all of a sudden the essays were addressing the kind of state I was in right in that moment. So I made a mental note to study yoga as soon as possible. And in the meantime, I was fearful. I was afraid he would come back and hurt me. And I was failing at student teaching at that time. And so I just called uh, my aunt and uncle in another state, and I told them I had to get out of the area. I'd never done anything like that before. And I got on an airplane and flew and stayed with them. And um, so these strange states continued. In some ways, I felt that I was knowing myself better than I ever had. And uh, I realized that if I ever felt better again, I would try to help people, particularly women who found themselves in this situation, of, you know, isolation, fear. So eventually I went back to live with my parents and they suggested that I see a psychiatrist. So I did, because again, I didn't know what was going on. And he was following the protocol at the time in 1970. He meets a young person who's in strange states, so he gave me Thorazine and uh, three, a couple other drugs, because that's what they did then. And so I became an instant invalid. I couldn't read, because it blurred my vision. I couldn't sit in the sun, because there was an allergic reaction, and I couldn't drive. So I went from being more or less a well-functioning college student to an invalid in a short period of time. Well. There were two things that were very fortunate that were going on. One of them was that I had started, I found a yoga class and I would started practicing yoga every morning. I had nothing else to do. I couldn't do anything. So I had all the time in the world. So I would practice and I noticed over and over again how much better I felt. And also my mother was very sweet and loving and kind. And she, when she saw me, I, sometimes I would just sit on the living room couch in the summer in the inside and just stare at the wall because I was, you know, I was not really there. And she would say, Joanne, come take a walk with me, look at the flowers. I mean, I could cry right now. Of course, I probably will. <laughs> but um, she was so caring. And um, so a few months went by and I was feeling a little better. So the psychiatrist took me off that heavier medication and put me on some lighter medication. And then uh, I felt even better, so he took me off that. So within about six months, I wasn't on any medication anymore. Of course, I was doing yoga every day, and I never told him about it. 
because I didn't feel that he would value it. In the meantime, you know, I had symptoms and I, so I read about depression and it, it said that signs of depression are early morning awakening. That was one of them. It still is. And loss of appetite. And I, I had those. So it, you know, this is, I'm going back in time a little bit, but it, it scared me that I had these serious, serious symptoms. Anyways, so then I, I started going to a yoga center not too far away, and, and then a yoga retreat. And the spiritual master that, who ran it, Swami Satchidananda, he, he lectured us about how, how the more spiritually evolved person wakes up early in the morning because they're more, more, that's a time when the earth is more peaceful and uh, it's a time to meditate and it's a sign of spiritual aliveness. And he also said that a vegetarian diet would, was very helpful for spiritual progress. And that's what happened to me is that I couldn't eat meat anymore. That, you know, I, my appetite for meat went entirely away spontaneously. And so all of a sudden I was seeing my symptoms in an entirely different light as a positive thing. And that really made me start to question the psychiatric system, which I didn't know anything about prior to that. So I, I started feeling better and better and I got a job and eventually moved out on my own and to, you know, to live closer to the Yoga Institute. And I started to really, as I felt better, I started to inquire, well, what had really happened to me? And what was the answer? And what about, you know, what was so wonderful about yoga? So I, I spent a number of years going to the library and reading all these books that answered a lot of my questions. I read Stanislav Grof, Realms of the Human Unconscious. He had experience, he had been a researcher with LSD and he sort of he understood the whole geography of the of one's inner life in a way that the psychiatrist didn't. And um, there were uh, there were other books that kind of showed me the way. And so I felt that, you know, my life path was unfolding and that I was wanting to be a psychotherapist and I had a deep desire, if ever possible, to bring yoga into, into the profession, which it wasn't. That was like crazy back then. So I went, to, I, did, I went to social work school in 1978. That was eight years after this experience. And I graduated, and I had various jobs. And in, 19, in the 90s, I felt I was ready to become a psychotherapist, so I did. And then in 2005, I, had heard, I heard that there was a special training going on in Boston sponsored by one of the most famous psychiatrists in the world, Bessel van der Kolk, because he had developed, he had been one of the people to develop the diagnosis of PTSD, which didn't exist before 1980. So anyway, he was training therapists and yoga teachers in trauma-sensitive yoga. And I was so moved by that because I felt that, see, I like to have external validation of what I'm doing. I like society to recognize me. You know, I don't, I'm not much of a rebel. So that, that there was my entree into bringing yoga into, this, into the, the profession. And because it had helped me so much. And there were lots of people, stories of people who had the same experience. So since 2005, I've been, I brought yoga into my psychotherapy practice, and I am now traveling and giving trainings to psychotherapists and yoga teachers on 
trauma sensitive aspects of yoga, like how to kind of tweak yoga to make it appropriate for people who are having emotional challenges, whatever they might be. It's more than PTSD. It's depression and anxiety. It's all part of the same thing in, in this new model that's being developed of somatic psychotherapy. It's so wonderful to have that as a resource now. It really explains to me everything that I had gone through, and it's very humbling and, uh, to um, be part of this whole movement. So I'm still doing yoga. I've never gone back into a major depression. I have a little tendency toward anxiety, but I can manage it um, through deep breathing and yoga postures and exercise and swimming and eat good diet. And I have found self-care was the most important thing that got me through all of this. You know, back in those days, I realized that each decision that I made moment by moment throughout the day would determine whether I became more depressed or less depressed. It was like I was either on my way down or on my way up. And it's challenging to live when, it's, when the stakes are that high. That's what I did, and I have taken, taken the positive path. Joanne, thank you so much for your story. I just wanted to say I really related to that you started with uh, something you were struggling with and then made it like a life purpose and that you wanted to change the profession or be part of the change of the profession to like bring this to other people. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, I feel very lucky that I've been able to connect with other practitioners and, and you know, work together. Yeah, and, and that's been a theme in the show, that somebody starts with their own depression and struggles through it, finds something that works for them, and then the beauty of it is, it seems like so many people want to share, the, you know, the, the, the things that really helped. And what, what helped you the most during that time period? What was the thing that, I mean, the yoga, mm-hmm. of course, but did, were there other resources that you had that kind of helped you through mm-hmm. your depression? Mm-hmm. You know, while I was studying yoga in the early days, I, I was re-educated how, on how to breathe, mm. what to eat, how to have a relationship with a healthy relationship with my thoughts. I was given a philosophy of life which uh, is broad and deep that explains uh, death and birth and and that's something that I didn't get from our culture. Right. So it was the whole belief system was just as helpful as the actual day-to-day postures and breathing practices. I also wanted to ask you, you mentioned like in 1978 you you studied and then you, and it sounds like in 2005 that's when it really became part of your practice as a psychotherapist. Right. In the time before that, were you doing like a regular practice of oh, yoga yes. on your own? I was, and- yeah. I was, I was doing it really like six mornings a week or something like that. I was, I just loved it so much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so it wasn't a... Hard, hard discipline for me. So there wasn't like a break in service in that time. No, it was sort of like you, you, you mm-hmm. kept yoga through that whole yeah. time. Well, period. I took the yoga teacher's training during that time too. So oh. I was teaching yoga oh. from 1980 through into the, into the 90s before I became a psychotherapist. So it was sort of like you started with yoga, mm-hmm. yeah, trained with that, studied that seriously, and then wanted to bring it into psychotherapy. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. 
That's beautiful. That's really interesting. And it's it's not something I ever thought about actually before meeting you. <laughs> that that the trauma mm-hmm. aspect of like how yoga could be beneficial for that. I hadn't really thought about it. You know, can you talk a little bit about what that is? Like what's mm-hmm. the relationship? Well, you know, I, I've gone into such depth because I'm writing a book about it. Ah called, what's your book? It's called How to Live with Your Nervous System. Ooh. <laughs> I want to so, read it already. <laughs> yeah, well, it'll. I'm hoping it'll be out soon. So um, I've gone into such depth that it's hard for me to just speak about it in very general terms right now. Yeah. Um, it has to do with the autonomic nervous system and the balance between the sympathetic and parasympathetic branches and, you know, the way breathing uh, helps to regulate that. And, you know, it's, it's, a big, it's a big story for me. So we're going to have to cover that another time. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. I was just curious about mm-hmm. it because it's, it, I hadn't really thought of yoga specifically. For, but I always feel like yoga could be good for everything. Mm-hmm. All things mind, body, spirit. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's really a fascinating study. You know, I, I you know hope that my book comes out soon, and what I've learned will become available. Yeah, and can you can you tell us what your um, website is? Yeah, your... it's it's www.yogainpsychotherapy.com. But I also uh, think that it's very valuable for yoga teachers and yoga therapists to become familiar with trauma sensitive yoga, also. Well, on that note, I'm just going to say, Joanne, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. I want to mention again that if you found some of the content of today's episode triggering, please seek professional help and call 911 if you feel like hurting yourself or others. I'm not a licensed therapist, and this show and the station are not endorsing any remedies or products. The purpose of this show is to destigmatize depression through storytelling. You can find a link to mental health services on downtownradio.org on the About KTDT page. To listen to the podcast, or if you're interested in being on the show, contact us at www.thedepressionsession.com. You've been listening to The Depression Session on Downtown Radio Tucson with music by Septahelix. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at The Depression Session Podcast. Thank you.